This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. So a report today came out in the Toronto Star that uh, I think it came out late morning, maybe early afternoon today, that was based on leaked Liberal Party documents, Ontario Provincial Liberal Party documents, Kathleen Wynne government documents, saying, essentially, and you heard this on the news, so you've, you've got a good explanation. Ted Michaels gave it to you in the news there. Essentially, hydro rates are going to drop in the short term for the next few years. The Wynne government is going to control hydro rates, followed by a sharp, and I mean, according to these documents, a sharp increase for a number of years from now and onward. So according to this, they are talking about four years from here, after they've controlled it for a little while, your hydro rates will go up 6.5% each year for a number of years, followed by 10% increases after that. We're not talking little bits of money here. We are talking a lot of money, I think, for many people. Joining me to break this down and try and help me and you understand what exactly we're talking about here. Christine Van Guyen, the Ontario Director of the Canadians Taxpayers Federation. Christine, thanks for doing this tonight. Christine, are you there? Yeah. There we go. Okay, sorry. You know what? I hit the wrong button. I do that occasionally just for fun. Um, Thanks for coming on tonight. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let me interpret, if I can, what's going on, and you tell me if I'm if I'm warm or really cold on this one. Um, Kathleen Wynne's approval ratings are really, really bad, and she's looking at hydro as a big problem, as a reason why she may not get reelected. And she needs to do something in the short term immediately that will tie her over at least until the next election where she can maybe curry some favor. So... She buys your vote by holding hydro rates at the current rates at least until the election is gone when suddenly up they go and all of a sudden, but she's back in office because we voted for her again because we're happy about our hydro and then all of a sudden in her next term, well, she can figure out in her next term what's going to happen, but then we're strapped with these giant rates. Would that be a reasonable assumption of what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, you really hit the nail right on the head. That's when, what all, when this plan was announced, her 25% reduction, when that was announced, all the analysts came out and said, yeah, I mean, if you hold the rates to the rate, the electricity rates to the rate of inflation, eventually they're going to go back up. And the government's own documents that were leaked today when they introduced the legislation, that's exactly what it shows. It shows dramatic increases beginning in 2022. And then, um, Beyond that, by 2027, they're going up at over 10% a year. So pretty pretty crazy that she's trying to tell us that she has a long-term plan to fix hydro, but that long-term means to the next election. Well, essentially, to me, what this sounds like then is whoever gets in office, I, may, maybe they are setting it up like this, I don't know if it's intentional, but whoever gets into power next in Ontario is going to be sitting on a giant time bomb because it's going to go off and there's really not much they can do about it. Yeah, I'm, I think that that's probably accurate. I think that there are a lot of things that this government's done that are, are, are bombs left for whoever takes over after after they um, after the next election. I mean, I guess they're at 12% in the polls, so it's probably not the, the Liberals are probably not going to form the next government. But I mean, this is this is one of them. Cap and trade is another time bomb that's that's going to be a problem for the government. Um, there's a, a whole field of issues that are going to be problems for whoever forms the next government. But they don't care about that. They care about making it to 2018. Um, They care about retaining power. They don't care about solving the actual problem of of their own making. Okay. And what you and I both, and I'm granting you this, I mean, it's really cynical politics at the highest level, if that's what they're doing. If this is all about just push it down the road, past the election, 
and leave it for the next party to deal with. That's really cynical. The problem, though, Christine, here's where I'm, I'm what happens. And it's hard to imagine this could take place. But what happens if the liberals win? Because then um, they're sitting on their own time bomb. Yeah, they are. They are. I think that what they would do if they won would be to probably um, just renew the um, the subsidy that they've already put into place. So kick the can further down the road. So right now, that those rates are being held to the rate of inflation for the next four years. They're keeping increases to about 2% annually until 2021. Um, I imagine if the current government's re-elected, they could renew that legislation and kick the can further down the road. Pass the, the next is, election. Yeah, but the thing is, they're spending $50 billion to do this. So they're spending $50 billion of what's our money to get themselves re-elected. And I don't think that uh, we have the money to do that. But I, I mean, I, I don't believe that they would stop of spending another $50 billion to do it again in, it, uh, after 2018. Well, I, I think that that's their, their, um, the way they operate. And again, I go back to the word, and I, I really think that if that's what's happening here, it is so cynical because then the next step, of course, will be that, let's say the conservatives get in, which a lot of people think will happen. They'll be sitting in power and the liberals will be in opposition. And when these rate hikes go crazy and go through the roof, it'll be the liberals in opposition screaming why aren't the Conservatives doing anything to stop these raising these rising hydro prices? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that whoever forms the next, next government has a real um, a real poison pill on their hands. This is a dangerous situation. Um, the electricity crisis in this province is a dangerous situation. It's dangerous because of the government's policies. Their decision to um, buy a whole lot of renewable power that we didn't need, buying excess generation above market rates, and we sell the excess power that we generate at a loss to other jurisdictions that we compete with. And even though we're, we have an excess, we're still buying, the government's still signing more contracts. So it's really a government driven by ideology and some utopian vision of the world rather than what's actually in the best interest of families and, and getting, frankly, getting themselves reelected. Talking with Christine Van Gein, the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Um, the government today, of course, they had to have some explanation for this. They basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, but that this was simply a working paper. It was some numbers they were throwing around to explore. They're not really accurate. It was it was more of just a, a rough draft of something. Uh, do you buy that? Yeah, I mean, they said it was it was old documents, that it's old. And um, I mean, what are they supposed to say when cabinet documents are leaked by anonymous sources in the government? I mean, clearly there are people who are unhappy with the policy that the government's brought in and chose to release this. And I think what's shameful is that the government, despite what their own papers that they have internally and weren't releasing to the public, despite what those papers are saying, the government is still trying to tell us that what they've developed is a long-term plan. And it's not. I mean, you can't continue to, to artificially lower rates and incur debt over, you know, in perpetuity, at some point you have to pay the piper. And what their their documents that were released today show is that they're planning on paying it after they're reelected or they're having us pay it. So you're not buying at all the fact that these numbers are just, don't pay any attention to the, the numbers, they're just made up. You, you, these are accurate as far as you're concerned or close to accurate. Well, I mean, I have no idea about about the, the source of the documents other than that they're they're leaked cabinet documents and the government has confirmed that they are cabinet documents. That they're real, they, yeah. They're just, they, these are real documents. They just say, 
oh, we have we have new other information now. I mean, give me a break. When this stuff was developed, they didn't release it. So what what's what's the truth then? They haven't released anything that's showing us what the numbers actually will be in 2027 when these documents show our bills are going to be upwards of two hundred dollars. Yeah, above what we're what we're at now. That's like, that's the part that that's the part that is unbelievably staggering about this because this would almost be funny if it was not such a, a, a hammer that's hanging over us and our wallets. And it, I mean, it's not funny, but the idea behind this that like, Hey, let's just make everyone not pay attention for a while and maybe it'll go away. It, it's a dangerous problem with all, with the amount of money that the report is talking about that people yeah, are going to get strapped with. I maybe, maybe I would believe the government if it, if it weren't for the fact that over the past years, our rates have doubled. So what am I, what are we supposed to believe? They, they have already done, they've already brought a similar situation to the province. And they're just, they're telling us not to believe their own documents that say they're going to continue to do it. Give me a break, except, except for the year and a half when they're running for re-election. Yeah. And the, and the worst part about this, I guess, if, if there's a worst part is we just had the stats can, uh, the, the census, pardon me, report come out the other day, which started talking about population and aging and all that kind of stuff. And we know that already we are at the tipping point where we have more seniors than people under 15. Our population is aging to a, a, a rate we've never had before. Well, three, four, eight, ten years down the road, that's even going to be more exaggerated with more people on fixed income whose hydro rates are going to be going up and up and up and up, and they can't afford that. Exactly. How are people on a fixed income who are retired or living on a pension, how are they supposed to control a cost for, for something like hydro that they have lost all ability to manage? I mean, people are use, using as little electricity as they can. I hear these, I, I talk to people all across the province. I hear stories of people, um, you know, they keep keep warm under an electric blanket at night or they light their home with candles and um, use, use firewood to heat their homes and, and turn off their electric home heat. And these are terrible stories. And that's the reality for a lot of people in this province. And it's only going to get worse with this government's plan. Let me go back for one second, Christine. We've got a couple of minutes left. Let me go back to something we talked about just a minute ago, though. Regardless of who wins, how does a party that gets into office disentangle itself from what is there? I, I don't see, and maybe there's an explanation, I don't see how any party actually fixes this because I don't see how you get out of some of these contracts and some of these situations. So you're, you're kind of stuck with it, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a big problem for whoever forms the next government. Um, I think that the key is to stop signing new contracts immediately. Um, the government, whoever forms the next government, should also try and get out of whatever existing contracts they can. And there are some contracts that they could get out of, um, you know, contracts that might be in default or um, that haven't started yet or have been delayed. So they could get out of things like that. Um, There's a lot of money that's being spent on programs, um, for example, conservation programs. We spend about $300 million a year on conservation programs. And um, that's to encourage people to use less electricity. We already, we already have a pretty good conservation program in Ontario, and it's called People Can't Afford Their Electricity. So to spend millions of dollars on a year, te- millions of dollars a year, telling people not to do something that they're already incentivized not to do, I mean that's good money after bad. So there's things that the government could do that they could do today that would make things a little better. But you have to have a, a, a view that those are important things to do. And this current government, uh, as I said, puts ideology in their, their vision of a, a, a sort of 
green paradise of Ontario ahead of the reality of people's lives. Christine Van Gein, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. It is it is really... Um, it is really troubling. It is really concerning. And, and you know, you... We can talk about this as a partisan political thing or not. It doesn't really matter. We have a government that's in office right now that is acknowledging through these documents, whether you, whether you, whether you want to agree that they're 100% accurate or whether they're working papers or whatever, but these are, they've admitted these are government cabinet documents. So if we were talking about a conservative party that was in office or an NDP party that was in office, it happens to be a liberal party. I don't, think it, I don't think it's a partisan thing. Some people are going to make it partisan. I don't think this is a partisan thing. This is a situation where we have had bad decisions with, as Christine says, based on utopian visions or based on philosophical decisions about green energy and all this kind of stuff. But that it, it, it envisions a kind of green utopia but doesn't factor in real-life prices, real-life people, real-life costs, real-life effects. And when you start to look at the numbers that they're talking about, that if I understand how this is worded, and, and I think I do, that they're talking about by the year 2022, your hydro bill, so we're not talking very far off, will be $195 a month higher than what it is now. That's, now, if that's right, it may be, well, th- there's a number of ways to read the way this story is worded. I, I'm not sure if that's the number or if the average bill is going to be 195 Regardless, your cost for hydro over the next number of years is going to go through the roof. We're going to get past the election. Uh, the, the hope for the Kathleen Wynne government is everyone will be happy because they've held back the amount of cost of hydro. So going into the election, your bill is going to go down a bit and everyone's going, oh, look at what a great job the wind government has done. They fixed the hydro thing. And so no longer do we have a reason to vote them out because, yeah, they made a few boo-boos, but now they've got things back on track. But, but all that they've done, think about, the best way I can think of for this is think about this kind of as if you had a line of credit. And you went to your bank and you said to the bank, I can't afford to pay my line of credit right now. I've just lost my job. I need a year without paying. But I'll pay you back later. So after a year or after two years of me not being able to pay, my interest rate is 5%. You know what? Because I'll, I'll, I'll make good with you. I'll collect interest between now and then. So you can keep adding interest to the principal and building up the amount. But also when we get to that two years and I start repaying you, instead of 5%, I'll pay you 7%. I'll make up for it with 7% now. What you see how problematic this is. Yeah, you've, you've, you've put it off for a little while and it looks fine because you don't have to pay at this moment. But when the time comes to pay the piper, you are really looking at big money. Take a quick call here. Robert is on the line. Robert, how are you tonight? Not too bad. How's yourself? I'm excellent, thank you. I really believe that this is a deliberate attempt by the Liberal government to sabotage the next government. Well, you know, Robert, it's an interesting idea. I raised that with Christine a moment ago. And I tend to lean towards this idea of a time bomb as well. The only problem with that is, and I, I don't know, 
if they somehow, like they did last time, manage to pull a rabbit out of the hat and win, then the bomb goes off under their own butts. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I, I believe they know they're going to lose. I absolutely believe they know this. And the Liberal government at this time right now, every program they're going to introduce, have it stacked up. And anybody who's in power, PC, NDP, they're going to have to answer, why are you cutting programs? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? You're not going to help us out. You're not going to help this group out. And they promised the world for everything that could possibly be paid for, they promised. And now you're to the point where the taxpayers here are holding the bag for all the costs. All, and you can't have a functional government the next time around because they're going to have to pay, I'm sorry, for the next four years. It's austerity measures that they're going to have to occur. Robert, it's a great thought, and I appreciate your call. Thank you. Thank you. And, and remember one other thing as we go to our break here. This, this report says that it's going to be four years, right? So we've got, when this went into effect, another year before the election, and then we're two years, roughly two and a half years into whoever makes the government their mandate, which is just nicely long enough that the people have now forgotten, so goes the hope, I would think, of the Liberal Party, of the Kathleen Wynne Liberals, that people have kind of forgotten this so that it's far enough into the new government's mandate that when these hydro rates start to rise, people actually blame that government. Because if they did it where it starts right away, everyone goes, well, no, come on, that's the liberals' fault. You inherited this. This is far, this, again, when I use the time bomb analogy, this is far enough away that you can blame them. You can blame the new government and people may forget. Because if there's one thing we know about politics, people have very, very short memories a lot of the time, especially if the party they generally like, but has gone to be a little unpopular is now trying to get back into power, we tend to forget some of the stuff they did. We're more concerned about the foibles and the faux pas of the government that's in power. So if you can find some way to dump a little more onto their head, all the better. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Well, from 2008 until 2011, my next guest was a forward with the Hamilton Red Wings. Now, some of you know that. Many of you wouldn't know that, or many of you wouldn't have seen him because you're not always big audiences at the Dave Andertruck Mountain Arena back in those days for the Hamilton Red Wings, even though there were some obviously very good players coming through there. But anyway, since then, boy, oh boy, has he moved up in the world. A few weeks ago, he wrapped up his rookie season with the Toronto Maple Leafs, one that had him praised almost every night after the game was over by his head coach, Mike Babcock. Zach Hyman of the Toronto Maple Leafs joins me. Zach, how are you tonight? Excellent. Hey, congratulations on that season. That was uh, that was an unbelievable rookie year for you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Is your body back to normal yet? Because you didn't treat it particularly well a lot of nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I took, uh, took some time off and excited to, to get back at it and, and get ready for next season because uh, it's, it's exciting times here. Do you keep watching the playoffs after you were eliminated or do you just step away from hockey altogether? I stepped away for a little bit, but I, I couldn't miss those two Game 7s yesterday. So those, those were the two uh, games that I, uh, first games I watched back, and, and they were great games. So you were, I mean, you were a hockey fan since you were, I don't know, since you were born, basically. I mean, I, is it different, though, when you're sitting there to watch Game 7s in the NHL now that you've been at ice level and you've seen what it's all about and you've kind of been behind the curtain? Does it, is it different to watch it now? 
Yeah, it's way different. It's funny. I was, I was telling my friends, all my friends are huge hockey fans, obviously, and, and they all watch the, the the playoffs, and they're like, oh, we can't wait to watch this game. Like, uh, like I, I wish I was playing still. It, it, it kind of ruins the watching for for you because you just want to be there and, and be playing, and we had a little taste of the playoffs, and um, you just want to be playing. It sucks to watch. Well, and I would think it would, you know, it would especially suck to watch when you're watching the Washington game because mm, you guys were real close. You might have been in that game. Yeah, we were. I mean, we were right there with them, and uh, five overtime games, so it was a really tight series, and uh, they got the better of it. But uh, they also had a great series against Pittsburgh. That, that was a um, close fought series, obviously going to seven. And, and last night was was a intense game, and I mean, uh, we wish we were there, and you know, we're we're striving to get better next year and, and now it's all about next year for us again when you're watching though your friends are sitting there watching and they're right into it but when you're doing it when you see a guy go down to block a shot and then limp off to the bench are you are you wincing like you you know what that feels like now yeah you do but <laughs> at the same time I mean, you, you, you want to pay that price when, when you're when you're in the playoffs so that's why that's what you play the regular season for is just to get into the playoffs and have a chance and those guys are going down blocking shots because they, they want the ultimate goal and that's everybody's dreams since they're little is to win a Stanley Cup so all those little things they add up, and all those block shots—they really get get your your team going, teammates going. When you see somebody do that, it just shows how much they're, they're buying in, how much they want it. So, you said Zach that that these are exciting times in Toronto, and you're you're 100 percent right. Were you even you as a guy who grew? I think you grew up as a Leaf fan, right? You were a Leaf fan since you were a, a, a taught. Um, even for a guy who's watched the Leafs all along, were you caught off guard at any point by just how crazy and how excited people in town were? Especially in the playoffs, when you would step out on the ice for a playoff game. Yeah, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, right from the start of the season, we just wanted to go in with the attitude of we're just going to go out here and, and we don't have any. I know we have any expectations for us, so we're just going to go out here and, and play our best and just keep trying to get better because we're such a young team and we had great veterans who who led the way for us and uh, our fans were great. Right from opening night, it was a solid crowd. Almost, I think every night it was a solid crowd and uh, it was loud. And then obviously when when the playoffs came around. We had Maple Leaf Square was just wild. You drive in, you drive in, going to the game two and a half hours before, and people are lining up to to go and just stand outside and, and, and cheer us on. So it's, it's really, really um, nothing like it, and just a really special place to play hockey. And I'm, I'm fortunate to be playing for my hometown team, and, and it's uh, it's been a really, really fun first year. Well, I, it's it looks like it might be slightly different from Monday nights at the Dave Andertruck Mountain Arena. <laughs> those are fun times too, though. Those, those are Hamilton was is, is a great city, and I, I really enjoyed my my three years there. What do you think when you when people do mention it? And I don't know how often it comes up for you now when those days come up, but when when they do mention it, what what comes to mind? What do you what are the things you think about when you think about time with the Hamilton Red Wings? Well, as a teenager, I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old. So those are the years, big years of development, and I played for a great team, great coaches, and. Uh, it really helped me get to the next level, and and uh, it was a, OJHL is a great league to play in, and a lot of great players come out of there and 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 do a lot of great things. So Hamilton was um, a great place for me to play, in, and and I really just I loved it and I loved the city, and yeah, it was it was great for me. There are a lot of guys, and I mean it's hard to imagine, but that's a league that oftentimes people think of as if things go really well, the best you're going to get out of it is a scholarship. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But there's a lot of guys that played in that franchise, maybe not with you on your team, but who have had NHL, I mean, Cam Talbot, who was playing for Edmonton last night, played for the yep. Red Wings, and Spencer Abbott, who played a game this year for Chicago, and Tyler Gaudette, who I think was a teammate of yours in Hamilton for a while, uh, played for Phoenix, for Arizona. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable what actually came out of that 
I'll call it that little team because not a lot of people always paid attention to it. it. It's a pretty impressive resume of guys who who emerged from there. Oh yeah, I mean one one year I think it was either my second or my my last year we had four guys on the team who have played an NHL game, so it's pretty pretty uh, cool. I mean you don't see that often from one junior A team. That was uh, myself, Tyler Gadet, Buddy Robinson, and, and Matt Carey. So. Uh, to have four guys from one team in one year, uh, it's it's pretty special and uh, it doesn't happen with a lot of teams. But for you to go there, for you to play, now your dad owned the team, I know that, we'll get to that in a minute, but you mm-hmm. you took, it was probably the hardest route to get to the NHL. To go, the OGHL is not getting drafted by the OHL and then getting a, a red carpet up to the AHL or in. I mean, you have to claw and scratch your way. You went through the OJHL and then you went to Michigan and, and on and on. Any idea? Do you ever sit there and think, why did I not get drafted by an OHL team? Why did I have to go this route? No, I mean, every route's different for every player, and every player, uh, kids are out there listening, every player is different, so uh, everybody has the right path for themselves. There's no, there's no wrong path, there's no right path. It's whatever, uh, whatever's right for the player. And for me, uh, for myself, for, for my development, it was, it was always college. I always wanted to go to college. I always felt that I needed more years to develop and more years to to be ready for, for my shot at, at, at a pro career. And uh, I spent three years in Hamilton, four years of college, and then a year in the American League. So it's a, it's a long time uh, to get to the NHL. It doesn't happen overnight, and it's, it's, a, it's a marathon. So um, the OJHL and, and college was, was my path. When you came to Hamilton, though, were you thinking at that point that you were striving for an NHL career, or was it, uh, you know what, let me get a scholarship and let me go on and let me play and then just see what happens? Well, I think everybody's goal when you're a kid is, is to make the NHL. Everybody wants to, to play in the NHL. And when, when you first start playing, you, you idolize guys who are in the NHL. So you're, you're always in the back, in the back of your mind is, I want to play in the NHL. But um, it's hard to, to look that far ahead when, when you're 16 years old, to look far ahead and say, yeah, I want to play in the NHL, I want to be in the NHL. So you have to take little steps. And one of mine was I wanted to get a scholarship and, and go get my degree and, and, and play play hockey so that I can further my goal of playing in the NHL. So when I got my scholarship, I was thrilled. It was great. And then now it's your step closer. So you always have to take baby steps towards getting to your overall goal, but you definitely have that, that hope that, you know, that dream that you can one day play in the NHL. When you came to Hamilton though, you, you find yourself, when you were here, you're in a really unique position that I don't think any, well, eventually your brother was on the team, but you're the owner's kid and you've got the, you got your name on the back of your shirt, which is the owner's name. Is that a difficult situation to land in, to convince everybody that, you know what, I'm here because I can play as opposed to because I'm the owner's kid? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, that was a situation, but, you know, guys on the team are great. You, you, you go out there and, and you, you earn it every shift, and, and that's kind of something that I, my mindset was, was I'm going to go out there and just give 100% every time I'm out there, and, and you know, whatever happens, happens, and, and that's kind of the mindset that I've carried through, and it's it's given me a lot of confidence uh, going forward. Uh, I mean, you put, you play uh, for my dad owned the team, obviously, and um, I mean, people obviously will, will talk about how you know you people you're given this opportunity, but I, I felt like I went out there and earned it. And at every level and every year, I tried to get better and better. And, and you know, once you keep going through the ranks, people people start to to believe in, in your in you, and and then that, and you kind of prove people wrong. So it, it was. Uh, it, it didn't affect me. If anything, it kind of helped me, and, and um, it, was, it was good. Well, did you're it? You're going to get up critics at every level. So, if I can interpret what you're saying, did it make you feel like you had to prove more to prove that it was all be- it was because of you, was because of the instead of because of the opportunity? Yeah, but I, I didn't really care for what people were saying at the time about 
about the situation. For me, it was more about just going out there and having fun and playing hockey. It wasn't about any of any of that stuff, and and I just wanted to go out there and have fun and, and help my team win. And and we had great teams in Hamilton, and we had a lot of success, and it was it was a lot of fun. And um, but that stuff was kind of background noise, and it, I guess it helped because as you go up through the through levels, as you get to college and you get to the pros, you have more and more media attention and more critics. So you're always going to have critics, and it kind of helped me deal with with stuff that were that would come later. Well, and when and when you go to Michigan or when you go to the Marlies or now to the Leafs, I mean, you now um, you've shown that it wasn't because of the name on the back of your shirt. I mean, that's that's been proven. Um, but did it make it easier once you left? Because again, I when you when you have that separation, then and you are establishing yourself that no, this isn't because of anybody, any ownership. Is it easier then down the road to play because you've you've had to prove yourself now? Maybe, but for me, it, 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 I didn't have to prove it to myself. Right? Okay. So, for me, it was I always believed in myself, and and I always believed that in my abilities and and things like that. So when I got to college, you don't I didn't really hear about it anymore, obviously, because my, nobody owns. Uh, sure. <laughs> right. So I didn't hear about it anymore. So it was it was kind of just in the past, and um, went on with it, and just kind of kept playing hockey. It was great. I remember standing one day actually at the arena chatting with you in the tunnel by the dressing room and the one thing you said at that time was the thing you had to work on because it wasn't ready yet for the next level was your skating. How did you become a guy who could go from a a player who looked at his own skating and said it's not good enough to be able to be a, a guy who can skate and keep up in the NHL? What did you do? It's a lot of work. I mean, we have... We have great. Uh, we work with Barb Underhill here with with the Toronto Maple. She's a great uh, skating coach, and Mike Ellis, and and we have a great staff here with, with the Leafs. But it, it started a long time before that. Obviously, with, with Hamilton, um, worked with great people. I worked with uh, Doug Antoine, and he, he was great for skating. And just working with a lot of people, working by myself, taking advantage of. I had to take a year off in between uh, high school and university. I think that's the year that I really improved my skating. I was just skating almost every day. Just working on um, like foot speed and my overall speed, and like anything in life, you just got to put put the time in and and go to work, and and that's something that, that that's important for me. It's important in my game, and it's important in my life. Is just going out there and, and giving a hundred percent in everything you do, and you see results when when you work hard and and when you when you put your mind to it. So, chatting with Zach Hyman, um, Zach. You played this year. You get your rookie year in the part of the hockey universe where the spotlight is the brightest. You're on the biggest stage. You're a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, is is there a way to prepare for that? For someone who's coming into the NHL and is starting his hockey career, his pro career, is there any way to prepare for what comes along with being a member of the Maple Leafs, especially a Maple Leafs team that people are really excited about? I don't know if there's a way to prepare, but you, you go out there and, and you just want to you want to play well and you want to help your team win. And I think it helped for for all of us young guys and all of us all of us rookies that we did it together. We I mean we had a huge group of of first year players and um, everybody kind of shared shared the the attention. Obviously Austin and and Mitch and and Willie got the majority of it being being the high profile players that they are and how unbelievable seasons they had. But I think that it helped that. We had seven or eight young guys going and, and, and working together, and, and every night we were we were going out there and giving 100. percent And I think that 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 helps uh, spread spread the load around a little bit. But I'm thinking almost more of the stuff away from the rink because there is something about being a Toronto Maple Leaf in Toronto. I mean, until last oh, yeah. year, you could walk down the street, and I mean, no insult, but nobody could have known who you were. You could have walked anywhere and been Zach Hyman, the anonymous Zach Hyman, like all the rest of us. 
Now you're Zach Hyam in Toronto Maple Leaf rookie. Lots of attention, praised by Mike Babcock every night. I'm assuming you're getting noticed. Can you prepare for that kind of part of the game? Well, I think being from Toronto, you have more of a sense of of what 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 that what, what entails becoming like being a Toronto Maple Leaf. What it comes with, and and obviously there's so much passion in the city, and everybody loves loves the Leafs, and so people will recognize you. And and um, being from Toronto, it's extra special because I was that kid idolizing players growing up and and wanting their autographs and going up to them. So you have a responsibility to be a good role model and. Um, but it's cool. I mean, I, I I love interacting with fans and and signing autographs for 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 young kids and seeing their faces light up because you know I, I was that young kid way back and it's it's just a really special feeling to to be able to do that. Do you feel like your life has changed? And again, I'm talking more off the ice as far as just being Zach Hyman, being the guy out in town. Has things have things really changed a lot for you? Um, I don't know really. I I, I kind of just. Everything kind of just it doesn't it doesn't go from zero to hundred. It kind of just uh, it keeps going, and uh, I feel like I'm just the same person that I was, you know, before I was a Toronto Maple Leaf. But being a Toronto Maple Leaf is special, and it's just now part of a part of who I am. And it's it's something that you dream for and that you strive for when you're a kid. And when it happens, it's surreal, and it's just it's, it's a real honor. Yeah, and I know. I mean, you're a modest guy, and that's very obvious, but. Can you give me an example of some time when it dawned on you, like in a real way, that, geez, I'm a member of the Maple Leafs. Something happened out in public or something happened that someone noticed you. Was there, was there a moment when you realized this, this is very different from what I used to have or what, what used yeah. to happen? I think in, uh, in the playoffs, I was out, to, out for lunch one of our off days uh, with my girlfriend, and we were just sitting there eating lunch, and I asked for the bill at the end of the meal, and, and the waitress says, no, my boss is a huge Leafs fan. <laughs> it's on the house, and I'm like... Yeah, sorry. He was like, yeah, he's a huge, huge Leaf fan. So I went up and and shake his hand and thanked him for for the free meal. And he just said, "Go out there and beat Washington tomorrow." That's all that I care about. So, um, that's, that's pretty good. Where it was like, yeah, that's kind of where it was like, oh wow, like that's pretty cool. And my girlfriend never experienced that, obviously, so she was she was in shock. But um, yeah, it, I mean, it's awesome. That's the kind of support that you get from the city, and that's how much uh, the Leafs mean to the, to the city. So. Well, I got to let you go, but uh, just one thing before I do. I don't think a lot of people are going to know, in addition to your time as a Red Wing and the Leafs and everything else, um, you are a children's book author. You've written two books for kids, which a lot of people aren't going to know that. Is there a third book somewhere in there now with the story of what happened to you over the past year? Because I think that I think that would be a great story. Growing up in town, have, becoming a player on that I, hometown team. Yeah, you know what, that's a, that's a good story, but the story is far from finished, so... Um, we're gonna save that one. I have a third one coming out actually, but that'll be out next year, uh, sometime in in the spring of 2018, and that that's about uh, an adventure book, so a little bit off the sports path. And I'm excited about that one, and uh, excited about um, being a Toronto Maple Leaf, and and hopefully being here for a long time. So. Zach Hyman, uh, listen, thanks for doing this today. Congratulations on the season, and uh, it's uh, it's great chatting with you. Thanks for the time. Thanks, God. Appreciate it. That is uh, former Hamilton Red Wing, which again, not a lot of people saw him play. I mean, some did. Some were regulars up there at the Dave Andertruck Mountain Arena, but a lot of people now looking back going, wait a second, he was playing here? Well, yeah, yeah, he was playing here. Three years he played here, along with a lot of other. Cam Talbot, Cam Talbot, Edmonton Oilers goalie. Guy who, if Edmonton had gone on to win that series and gone on to the Cup, he could have been the Conn Smythe Trophy winner, maybe. You never know. Um, 
another guy who played up there. There are a few people in town who saw all these people play and can honestly say that, but there you go. Zach Hyman. Remarkable season, and considering where he came from, it's even more of a great story. And I bet you there will be a book in there eventually. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Right off the top, can we all... I was going to say, can we all acknowledge? I don't think we can. I think there's going to be some difference of opinion on this one, whether this is a real problem, because there are people who will make the case that phones have an ed, that phones can have an educational component, that there can be uses for a smartphone in class to look stuff up. I mean, remember, we don't use the World Book Encyclopedia anymore. All of our stuff that we research, or at least a lot of it, we still use some books, but a lot of people, most of the research they will do is online. So yeah, so there's that advantage. You can have your your computer right on your phone as your computer right on your desk and away you go. But teacher after teacher after teacher, as you go online and read stories and hear teachers talk about it, it is a huge distraction to have cell phones in the classroom. A, because kids are talking to each other. Kids are social media-ing each other. But remember one other thing about teachers. We give teachers a hard time sometimes, all right, usually when it comes to contract disputes. But we do have to remember one thing about teachers. We now have province-wide testing. Teachers, to some degree, are graded themselves on the results of their classes' province-wide exams. And if you have a teacher who's trying to teach a class and trying to help the students learn and realizes that he is he or she are going to be graded on how the students do, and as he or she is up there teaching, he looks across the room and sees half the students are on their phone, not only are they not learning anything, but his career, her career, is now going to be negatively affected. So there's all kinds of reasons why you would say, okay, we got to do something about this. And I think most people, as I say, I think most people would agree, would believe, would accept that something should be done. Some boundaries, some guidelines should be set up for phones. The question is what? I'll tell you what you can't do. And see, here's here. This was my initial thought process. Turns out that I was wrong on this one. Well, I'm, I'm not convinced I'm wrong yet, but the teacher who used my idea with, before I came up with it was suspended. So I'm assuming it was kind of wrong. There was a teacher in Florida who bought this thing. It's called a signal jammer. <laughs> he used it in his class. And what it does, it's an electronic device that essentially disrupts all the cell phone signals in the classroom. So students would try to get on their phone and it would block them from using their phone. I thought this was ingenious. You want to bring your phone in class? Knock yourself out. I don't care. You're not going to be able to use it because within my classroom, they don't work. The phone's not going to work. Well, they actually suspended him and said, no, that's actually illegal. Here's the worst part about it though. When they suspended the teacher, what was the, what were the complaints from some of the students and some of the students' parents? You ready for this one? All right, I, I can I can all I can hear almost any excuse. The the explanation given from a number of the students and their parents was we need to be able to use our cell phones in case a shooter breaks into the school and we have to call police. 
How many shooters could, I mean, I know there are shooters in schools, but how many do we have that that's the reason that every kid needs to be having their cell phone at their side all the time? That, that, that was weak. I'm I mean, sorry. That's, that hi- that's hyper specific, but that's actually the reason why signal jammers are illegal is because you need to be able to use phones in the event of an emergency. I understand that. I also believe that since this, the jammer was in his classroom, I'm sure he could have flicked a switch and turned the thing off if there was I an do. emergency. No, it doesn't matter. There's a good reason why cell phone jammers are illegal. And I like the idea. Absolutely stay that way. Oh, here. Here's the thing. I believe I have not been in a lot of classrooms lately in high schools or elementary schools. I don't think this is an elementary school problem. I'll be honest. I think this is a high school problem. I would bet you that almost every classroom in every school across the province, across the country, across North America has a phone in the classroom. I would bet you that almost everyone has a phone in the classroom on the wall. They all did not that long ago. And so... Surely, if there was a real emergency, you would be able to find a way. But, okay, regardless. A, a, signal, a signal jammer is a nuclear bomb solution to the problem. It is, we're going to make sure there's no problem by wiping everything out. That's a, that's a no, it terrible no, no, wait solution. A it doesn't wipe everything out. It just stops you from using it. It doesn't clean off no, people's it, phones or no, damage their phones. If, if you're saying we don't want kids to be using their cell phones, the answer is not, well, then nobody can use their well, cell see, phone. See, that would be that would be my answer. I'll be honest with you. If you, if you have shown, and, and this teacher, again, you go back and read the story, the teacher's comments were, we tried. We have tried to get them to off their phone, and they won't, so we did this. If you have tried everything and you can't get the kids to put their phones down, and by the way, as I continue here, I want to be a little, um, I want to be very honest. I want to be very upfront. I don't want to be just talking about kids. I have problem putting my phone down. Luke has problem putting his phone down. We all are addicted to our cell phones to some degree. So it's not just that we're hanging kids out to dry or students out to dry. The problem is when you're in class, it's not only rude, which it is, but it's disrupting and it prevents you from doing what you're there to do, which is to learn and to listen to the teacher. And so what do you do about it? Well, what do you think we should do about it? Since, since phone jamming, you can't jam the phones anymore. You can't. And I'm told, again, reading a bunch of stories online, that there have been numerous complaints when teachers have tried to remove the phones from kids as they come into the room. That apparently is not an acceptable answer in some places either. You, the teacher can't say, here's a bucket. Everyone drop your phone in when you come into the classroom. That apparently, now that's worked some places, but other places that is frowned upon as well, whether that's because it's seen as the teacher stealing property. I mean, I don't know what the reason is, but if you can't take the phones away, you can't stop them from using the phones electronically and rules about the phones clearly don't seem to have much of an impact because that's what we're talking about here. That's why the Toronto District School Board is actually trying to take steps to do this because their rules have not had enough of an impact. What do you do? Let me ask you. What do you do? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I would especially love to hear from you if you're a teacher. If you're in the classroom, what do you do if a student pops out their cell phone and starts typing on it, starts texting, starts tweeting, starts Facebooking, starts, well, kids don't Facebook anymore, apparently. Regardless, what do you do? What should we do? When smartphones pop out in class while you are teaching, what's the proper response? How do we stop kids from doing this? How do we stop students from doing this? Or do we? Or do we say, you know what? Forget it. If you want to waste your time in class, if you don't want to pass this course, knock yourself out. I don't care. 
If you don't, if I'm teaching physics at the front of the class and you're not paying attention and then you fail the test, I do not care because you were talking on your cell phone. You were texting on your cell phone. Now, here's the problem with that. A, as I said a moment ago, when it comes to the province-wide test, that will come back to bite some of the teachers in those grades. And B, if I'm the parent and I'm at home and my little Johnny comes home with a fail on his physics, I'm probably ticked off at the teacher for not making sure that my kid kept up, even though the teacher will say, well, I tried to get him off his phone, but he wouldn't do it. And we all know, not all parents, but we all know the parents that would not take that as an acceptable answer. You were the teacher. You should have done this. You should have made this right. Every time I tried to do it, I was told I could. Yeah, you should have done it anyway. You understand the problem here. So what is the answer? If you're a teacher especially, I would love to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. What is the answer to this? Because every single kid, well, actually it's not every single kid. I believe the number is, there There actually are numbers here, if I can just find it here. Um, 88, no, uh, they did a poll. McLean's magazine reports that a poll was done of 4,000 high school students in Canada. Uh, 79.3% owned a cell phone. Now, first of all, I'm shocked. I thought that would be a much higher number than 80%, roughly. I thought it would be about 95%. But I can understand, depending on where these polls were done, if you have people who are lower income or new to the country or, you know, I mean, it's not cheap to own a cell phone. Those plans are not inexpensive. So if, if I can understand, I guess, but if 80% of kids have these phones in their classroom, I bet you that 80% of that 80%, you do the math on what that is, use them from time to time. What do you do? Stuart is on the line. Stuart, how are you tonight? I'm great. How are you, Tim? Excellent. Well, what do you do about, what do you think we should do about phones? Let's, should we ignore it and say, if you want to work on your phone, work on your phone and I don't care, or should we do something about it? Well, I don't, I don't think it's a, I don't care situation. Um, especially in my house, uh, my, my grade 12 daughter, uh, she's, um, she's in a school where the teacher has, has sent a note home with at the beginning of the year and said that each time uh, the student is caught with their cell phone, they're sent out of, out of class. They're not allowed back in the class that day. If it happens a third, if it gets to three times, but if it happens a third time, they're actually sent to the office and they're suspended for three days. Whether that's a school rule, I'm not sure, or, or a board rule, uh, that, that part I don't know. But it, after we got this, this uh, letter from the teacher, we sat our daughter down and we, we basically said to her, we're paying for your cell phone, you're your plan is on our, our, our plan. It's a shared plan at home. And if you're, if you're caught with your cell phone in, in class and you're kicked out of class, we don't know until the third time, obviously, because then, then this suspension comes. I said, but if that part happens, you're just not going to have a cell phone. You know, you're, you're 17 years old. You can't go get your own cell phone. It, and I think, unfortunately, the parents have created this problem by making sure the kids have phones. When I was a kid, we, we didn't have a cell phone to, to call home or call our friends whenever we wanted to. We went home and used the, the landline. But unfortunately, 90% or 80% of the homes around here nowadays don't even have landlines. Let me ask you one more thing though, Stuart, because you touched on something else that I'm really interested in. You and your family and your daughter, you have made it very clear what the rules are. Yes. But do you not agree 
with me from what I've seen when my kids were growing up. Not all parents, maybe the minority of parents, but if a teacher sent that kid to the principal's office and there was a suspension, there are more than a few parents who aren't berating their kid for talking on the cell phone and taking that cell phone away from the kid. They are marching down to the school and berating the teacher and the principal for suspending their kid. Well, and that, yeah, I, I do agree with that. that. There's too much of that going on. Uh, the well, you you did this to my kid. I rem- so I, I applaud I you. I applaud you for what you're doing because I think you're actually helping the situation. Because if it comes from home, that's a good start. If there's a threat well, that that phone is cool. gone, that's a good start. It goes from my upbringing because my upbringing was. If a teacher sends a note home, you, you better look out, <laughs> and you better have a good reason why. I here's, hear that. Here's a, here's a really good example. I had a teacher send a note home. I think I was in grade four, and they said, I want you to take this note home, have your mom sign it, and bring it back the next day. And I wasn't letting my mom see this note. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there late at night with a letter from my that my mom wrote to my grandma, and I'm copying that signature, <laughs> and I take it into my teacher, and I'm all proud, and I hand it to her, and, I, and she goes, "I'll call your mother later." And I said, "Okay," and she goes, "This isn't her signature," and I'm going, "Yes, it is." <laughs> so my mom comes in that night, and teacher hands my mom the note, and she goes, "Well, what do you have to say for this?" And my mom looks at me and says. It's the best damn handwriting he's done all year. <laughs> Stuart, thanks for the call. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, I'm not sure that um, forging mom and dad's signature is the perfect answer, but uh, I mean, it's a funny story for sure. But I really believe, and as I read these stories, I read what's happening at the Toronto D- District School Board, I really believe that we do have an issue with this. I really believe we do, and I don't believe, for some of the reasons we just cited, I don't believe we have easy answers because... You, there will be people arguing that we need, as Luke said, and look, I'm not, I'm not making fun of what Luke said about the emergency things, but the reality is for the number of times that an actual emergency breaks out in school that requires someone to have a cell phone, it seems the distraction and the disadvantage to the other kids during class for all the other times outweighs that. It really does. I, now in those moments when you need to call emergency, Okay. I mean, sure. And maybe that's the kind of thing where you say, we need to have a policy in all classes across this country where kids, when they walk into the class, they dump their phone into a bucket and you can take it out on the way out and the teacher can keep his or her phone in case of that emergency. Maybe that's how it should be done. I don't know. But listening, reading this story today in the star, uh, sorry, earlier this week in the star about how much time is being spent by students in class, in school, on their phones. I'm not at all surprised. I I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised one little bit, but it's a reminder of just how completely dominant smartphones are in our lives now. And I'll be honest with you. If I was a student right now, if I was back in high school right now, I would be Absolutely a guilty party in this. 100% I would be the kid who would have a hard time putting his smartphone down in class. If I was allowed to have that phone at my desk, it would be a constant distraction to me. I would be checking it all the time. Anytime it lit up because I got a text message, I would have to read that. It's Pavlovian almost. 
I would be that I would be that kid. I would be the one who would be needing to check the phone and it would be costing me in what I was able to do in class. I know I'd be that kid and I can't believe that that's not the same for a lot of people. Tom joins me. Tom, how are you tonight? Good, Scott. How are you? Excellent, thank you. I, I just I just have to say in in sense of the cell phone revolution, which is it's a revolution, right? Of course it is. It's just going on and it's getting so out of hand. When I was in college, I had a teacher that came up to me and said, all right, I'm going to demonstrate this once. He took a cell phone, put it on his desk, took a mallet, (laughs) and smashed it on the desk. And this girl in the front row went, if you do that to my phone, I'm suing. You know, and he said, simple rule. If I hear one go off, if I see one come out, this is going to happen to your phones. Rule number one, no cell phones, put it on, hold, vibrate, whatever, do not pull it out. But see, Tom, uh, let me stop you for one second, because okay. it's a great point, but I really believe that even having the phone at your desk, even if you're not planning to use it, yeah. you know what, in fact, as a joke, Don Robertson, who's on here on the show every Monday talking sports, just, he's listening, just texted me and said, bet you just checked this, which I did because my phone lit up and I looked down at it because, and that's exact. if your phone is at your desk by your side, even right. if you're not planning to use it, it is still a distraction. It's a distraction. Turn it off. But even if you turn it off for the most part, because most people, their idea of turning it off is just, you know, the the off where the text will still pop up or a tweet or something will still pop up. It's, it is a huge challenge. It's a huge problem. And I, I think it really is having an impact in school. I really believe it when you talk to teachers, when you read stories, but, but there doesn't seem to be any clear way to deal with it. And nobody wants to make, it seems nobody wants to make a hard and fast absolute rule because whether it's complaints or something else, I don't know. And you know, the thing is, is that we have a society now that is completely enamored with this thing it's like and i i don't want to say it but it's a drug it's crack cocaine absolutely it is it is and and it's becoming to the point where you know people cannot leave the house without it people cannot you know they have to have it oh absolutely if you leave the house without your phone you're in a cold sweat when you realize it yeah and and that's the funny thing it's this it's ah well i hope they can figure it out but i mean i just remember this professor in college doing that <laughs> and it absolutely knocked my <laughs> I was like wow and this is probably you know five six years ago now it's becoming a major problem and it's going to get worse tom i appreciate the call thanks thanks scott uh we'll leave it there for now but it is uh, yes it is a uh, we weren't able to get our guest tonight we will try and get him early next week we'll see if uh we'll get some because he's done a ton of studying on this. And I think it's a worthy enough topic to, to go back and revisit because this is, as I say, one of those things when we're talking about wanting our kids to be educated and we do, we want our schools to be great. We want, this is the reason we have EQAO tests. This is the reason we are trying to guarantee that our kids are getting the best possible education. And I am 100% of the belief that the first step you take, well, maybe not the first, the first is you get good teachers, but the second step you take is you remove the distractions and the, and the obstacles to kids being able to learn from those teachers. And number one on that list would be having their phone at their desk. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.